Our um, passage this morning is Acts 19, verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there a danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius 
and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the, to the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it, it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after, after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm, calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dis dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's give thanks. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we see in Acts that just as you promised in the Gospels that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail it. So we see here that riots and all kinds of, of um, idolatry and everything and confusion and would, would not hinder your church and your building your church. Father, we pray now for Tom that you would speak through him, that he would be able to present to us your word clearly and that we would receive it as, as your word and that we would be faithful to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, guys. This is uh, quite, actually quite an amazing passage. Um, Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The knowledge that both of those verses refer to is not a head filled with accurate data, even about God. It is personal knowledge of the character and the ways of the one true God. It is that personal knowledge that produces wisdom in the hearts of God's people. That true knowledge of God is the ground of wisdom, and wisdom in the Bible is the moral skill to, leave, to live in keeping with 
that knowledge to live in keeping with what is true of the character and ways of God. That's what wisdom is. Chokmah, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it's a powerful word. And it is bound up together with who God is and with knowing him. Both the knowledge and the wisdom begin with the fear of God. That fear is the focus of this passage, every bit of it. Um, last week, we saw two visits by Paul to the city of Ephesus. I'm going to show you a little, a little drilled-down view of the port of Ephesus here. Uh, this, is, this is water over here, the Aegean, and this is the port. There's a river called the Caister River. The delta of that river is comes right into the northern part of the city of Ephesus. Here's the Temple of Artemis. Uh, this is the harbor that goes right up into the city. It's a, it is a port city. It's a very important one. Um, the, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But when Paul came in chapter 18, at the end of chapter 18, it was a very brief visit because he was actually headed for Jerusalem, uh, either possibly in part, to offer up sacrifices to fulfill his Nazarite vow that had ended. Also, to get there before the Passover, which uh, we'll see in the next chapter was, was going on when he came into Jerusalem. The second visit, however, that we're looking at this morning that started at the beginning of chapter 19 was actually the longest that Paul stayed in any one city during all of his three missionary journeys. It ends up being a total of about three years that he's based in Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important seaport in Asia Minor. Like Corinth, the, uh, the influence of Ephesus owed largely to its geography. Ephesus was situated in a naturally protected harbor on the west coast of Asia Minor at the, at the delta of the the Caister River, and Ephesus was roughly at the same latitude as Corinth. It, it was a beeline to go from Ephesus to Corinth, and that's very important because that was along a, a, a trade pathway that joined Asia to Europe, and so both of those cities were, were dots along the way in a, in a heavily used uh, trade, uh, tr trade path. So Ephesus was then inevitably an affluent city. It was a city filled with people. It was, by some accounts, the third largest city in the Roman Empire with a population of roughly 250,000 people. Now, that's before air conditioning and skyscrapers, right? That's a lot of people to be concentrated in one fairly small area. For all these reasons, again, Ephesus was... It was a place of great wealth. And though it was filled with religion, it was the religion of countless false gods, especially the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. She was considered to be the goddess of the hunt, the protector of children and wild animals. Interesting combination. Uh, the Roman equivalent to Artemis was Diana. And the Ephesian temple for Artemis, the temple in Ephesus was considered one of the great wonders of the world in Paul's day. It was elaborate and ornate. When you combine great wealth and dense population, 
with amoral religious religion and philosophy, what you get is, of course, a playground for self-indulgent excess. And, of course, all of that sounds a whole lot like 21st century Dallas, Texas. It's clear that when Paul picked his base of operations for each of his missionary journeys, easy was not one of his criteria. Acts 19, verse 8, tells us that after Paul enlightened 12 of the disciples of John the Baptist regarding the one whom John came to herald, whose coming John came to foretell, Paul then did what he always did. He went to this synagogue in Ephesus where he, quote, continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading regarding the kingdom of God. Paul's bold and always consistent proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, would have been clearly understood by the Jews in every synagogue to mean that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-promised king in the line of David, whom the prophets said would rule in perfect justice and righteousness on the throne of David in Jerusalem over all the kingdoms of the earth forever. It is that king and his glorious kingdom for which we eagerly wait. And so, so Luke says Paul was preaching the kingdom of God in the synagogue. Now, he didn't merely proclaim these things about Jesus. He reasoned and persuaded. Those are the two words that Luke uses here. He reasoned and persuaded as he proclaimed. God has not delegated to you and me the power or the responsibility to change anyone's mind or heart. That's the Holy Spirit's work. The Spirit is the one who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption in Jesus Christ alone. You and I will never accomplish the spiritual heart transplant that salvation requires and is, but that does not mean that we don't make every effort to persuade unbelievers of the truth concerning Jesus, reasoning with them on the basis of God's witness to his son that's found from cover to cover in the Bible. See, our proclamation by its very nature has the goal of persuading, of persuading sinners that their entire concept of well-being and of a right standing in the eyes of the one true God has been catastrophically wrong from the start, if they even believe in God, and that 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 concept of well-being and of righteousness must be radically changed in order for them to be saved. But as we seek to reason with people and to persuade them of the truth concerning Jesus, we must never lose sight of the fact that we will never be the ones who accomplish that persuading. We are never more than instruments in the hands of God. We are never less than instruments in the hands of God. He is the Lord of the harvest. So that's why in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, Paul Paul puts no premium on superiority of speech or on persuasive words of wisdom. He just proclaims Christ and him crucified. He knows that he's not the one that's going to change anyone, anyone's heart. Here in verse 9, Luke relates yet another of the many reports in the book of Acts of opposition to the gospel. He says, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, 
He's talking about Jews at the synagogue. Speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Exactly as had happened in Corinth, Paul and the many Jewish and, uh, Jews and Gentile proselytes who had come to faith during the time that he preached in the synagogue left the synagogue at this point to go and meet somewhere else because the synagogue became a place of great uh, opposition. The school of Tyrannus, don't know exactly what that was. It could have actually been a, a, a school uh, like for children. It could have been uh, a, a building or it could have been a lecture, a lecture hall of some kind that, uh, that a convert to Christ named Tyrannus either owned or, or managed. Don't know. Luke tells us that Paul continued to teach in that context for two years. And then he tells us the astonishing outcome that everyone in every community throughout the large and well-populated province of Asia in Western Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It says all who lived there heard the word of the Lord. Complete saturation. Just as when Paul remained for more than 18 months in Corinth, that city was not the only place that he went during those 18 months. Corinth had been Paul's home base for ministering throughout the region of Achaia that we know as Greece. Now, Ephesus was his home base for three years as he ministered throughout the region of Asia. And I'm going to back up to a different map here. I'm going to show you something else very interesting. Now, this had never struck me until this round through the study of Acts. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the ascended Jesus commissioned the Apostle John to write down seven letters to seven churches. All seven of those local churches came into existence by the work of the Holy Spirit right here in chapter 19 through the ministry of Paul and his co-workers. And that's just during the first two years that Paul was anchored in the city of Ephesus. All seven of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were in the province, then known as Asia. They were all roughly within 90 miles of Ephesus. The names of those churches, of course, are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And while I suspect that some of the significance of this uh, connection goes way beyond anything that my ever-shrinking brain can comprehend, one thing that struck me as I was pondering and praying about this was that all seven of those churches heard the gospel from the same missionary team led by Paul. They all came into being at essentially the same time. So the very considerable differences in zeal and faithfulness to Christ that we find in the seven letters cannot be blamed on any of these churches having started with a lesser understanding of the gospel or with lesser equipment, equipping by God in the gospel. Those differences didn't come because of any shortcomings in the way the churches were, were founded by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we shouldn't miss here in this morning's passage is that if Paul had stayed in the synagogue, many Gentiles would never have heard the message. 
But the strident opposition of the Jewish leadership in the synagogue once again pushed the gospel outside the synagogue into the city at large and from there into very many other communities. See, in the hands of God, opposition to the gospel is no threat to the gospel, ever. In fact, this is so reliable a truth in both testaments of God's word that it makes no sense for us who live today to interpret God's purpose in the opposition that we face in any other terms than this. Opposition to the gospel does not hinder the advance of Christ's kingdom on earth. Instead, the Holy Spirit uses that opposition to cause that advance of the gospel. The Holy Spirit uses opposition to the gospel to spread the gospel, to advance the gospel on earth. That was true of Saul's murderous persecution of the church before God radically changed his heart in Acts chapter 9, and it's true here. It was because of Saul's persecution of the church in Jerusalem that the believers in Jerusalem scattered and started spreading the gospel all over the place. And then God saved Paul and used him to really advance the thing. In the hands of God, opposition is never a threat to the gospel. The same God who has made us more than conquerors because of his unbreakable love for us also guarantees us that no created being and no created thing will ever stand in the way of the advance of the kingdom of his Son on earth. Verses 11 through 20 focus on yet another outworking of that very same reality. Luke tells us that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits came out. And the phrase extraordinary miracles seems kind of redundant at, at first, right? Uh, miracles are by definition extraordinary. But Luke is saying that the specific miracles he's describing here are extra extraordinary. For people to be healed merely by touching pieces of cloth that had been carried from the Apostle Paul to those sick and demon-afflicted people was unheard of, even among prophets and apostles. Yet such miracles were happening in Ephesus and throughout Asia, not once, but on an ongoing basis during the time that Paul was ministering there. Let me make one quick comment on that. So, uh, quite a few years ago, a man whose name sounded like Robert Tilton uh, sent out hundreds of thousands of little pieces of polyester cloth cut out with pinking shears and envelopes. And he, he sent them out and he said, if, if you'll just pray over this little cloth in this envelope and then write down your prayer request and mail it back to me, not postage prepaid, then uh, I will personally pray over every one of those cloths. And you, because of my special anointing, you will be healed or your prayer requests will be granted. When uh, St Steve Blow with the Dallas Morning News and then later ABC picked up on that whole thing and did a, did a, a little documentary on it, they talked to the people who worked for Tilton and they found out that they had been instructed to just grab the checks 
I may not have even said this, but the whole point was send back the cloth and the prayer request with a check. The checks were all taken out of the envelopes. The envelopes with the prayer requests and the pinking sheer polyester cloth were all thrown in a dumpster. When you take something that is an extra extraordinary work of God and you trivialize it like that, I don't know where you stand in terms of what to expect from God, but it can't be good. Uh, Luke goes on to tell us about a group of self-proclaimed Jewish exorcists here who kind of have that same mentality that I just described. They went from place to place attempting to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're dropping two names. These men were no doubt hiring themselves out to the families of demon-possessed individuals, but they were naming names with which they had no connection whatsoever. And even demons have no tolerance for such nonsense. Isn't that great? When some of those supposed exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, attempted to employ this same approach, the demon they were trying to cast out said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? It's like the demon was saying, is that all you got? If you were Jesus or even Paul, I might have cause for concern, but you don't even know those guys. The man possessed by the demon then proceeded to pounce on the sons of Sceva, quite literally, quote, beating them into submission so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. See, it does not pay to insult a demon by presenting false credentials. Even demons know whether or not you actually bear the spirit-given authority to name the name of Jesus. And that authority comes from trusting in Jesus and him alone. Verse 17 says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. The demon fell upon the seven sons of Sceva, and fear fell upon everybody. I believe verse 17 goes to the very heart of everything that Luke sets before us in all of this morning's passage. Fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Those things are, two things are very connected. The fear of the Lord and the glory of Jesus. People in Ephesus who had been engaging in sorcery and witchcraft were driven to the stark realization that their fear had been woefully misplaced. They realized that the only name that is worthy of any fear is the name of Jesus. So they brought their books that contained spells and incantations to a public place, piled them all up, and set them on fire. The value of that pile of book was roughly 50,000 days' wages. It's a lot of expensive books. It tells us something about how utterly consumed with the devil's business the great and affluent city of Ephesus had become. If we today piled up all the books that serve Satan rather than God and then added in all the revenue generated by the e-books and all the periodicals that fall in that same category, we'd be talking about untold billions of dollars. That'd make for quite a warm fire. I'm not advocating book burning, although 
there might be cause for it at times. Verse 20 tells us whose name and whose word came out the victor of this spiritual battle in Ephesus. It says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And by the way, every time you see the Lord in Acts, it means Jesus. The word of Jesus, the word concerning Jesus, was growing mightily and prevailing. The name of Jesus always prevails. In verses 21 and 22, Luke tells us that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, rooted in Ephesus, for a while. We find out Chapter 20, the total time was about three years that he was in Ephesus. Now, Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem and then to go to Rome did come to pass, but not nearly in the way that he expected it would. When he finally came to Rome, it was in chains. And that is not because the Apostle Paul was insensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in any way. These couple of verses actually, they actually show us a very important principle. Uh, God is not obligated to tell us everything that he has in mind for us in advance. Some believers seem to think that they are never to do anything of consequence until and unless God gives them clear, special revelation to tell them that they should do it. But the simple reality is that even the godliest and most mightily used people in both testaments of the Bible most of the time did not receive specific revelation about what they were to do and when and where. That did not make them one bit less useful to God. God does the steering. We act, we do the things that God has commanded all of us to do, and God does the steering. That doesn't mean God does not give special, specific revelation to individuals about what he intends to do with them. The point is it's not the norm, okay? And the reason that's so important is this. Walking by faith and not by sight means walking by wisdom much more than by knowledge. And I'm not, not talking here about that knowledge I was mentioning at the beginning, the personal knowledge of the character of God. I'm talking about knowing exactly what God's intention is for a particular situation. Walking by faith and not by sight means walking by wisdom and not by knowledge. Because God's word gives us the knowledge of his character and the resulting wisdom that we need to navigate thousands of specific decisions, we don't need and will not get specific knowledge from God about most of those decisions. And that's not a threat. That shouldn't be a scary thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will do what? He'll make your path straight. He'll direct your steps. Let him do the steering. This isn't a small thing to me. I, I, this is huge. And a lot of, I think a lot of Christians get crippled because they, they don't get that. 
This means that, uh, that our speculation about how specific events in our lives were going to play out is often going to be wrong. But that's okay. It's no threat to us. It's certainly no threat to God. We trust in God's knowledge, not ours. We walk by faith, not by sight. All right, pressing on. In Luke 19, 17, Luke says of those who witnessed and heard about the demon that Kolkach, the seven sons of Sceva, that fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Not the name of Paul, the name of Jesus. Now in verses 23 to 41, Luke sets before us a battle between two names. One name that is unworthy of fear, and the other that is alone worthy of fear. The unworthy name is Artemis, and the worthy name is Jesus. Actually turns out to be a very one-sided battle. A silversmith named Demetrius and other craftsmen like him were gathering, as Luke points, uh, as Luke points out, no, generating no little business by creating and selling silver shrines of Artemis, figurines of Artemis, the Greek goddess whose seat of worship was there in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, again, hosted an ornate temple to Artemis that contained an image or an idol of that goddess that her worshipers were convinced had fallen down out of heaven. That's not true, just in case you were wondering. As the gospel of Jesus continued to spread like wildfire throughout Ephesus and all the province of Asia, and by the way, if it had fallen down out of heaven, I'd be saying, where's the crater? As the gospel of Jesus continued to spread like wildfire throughout Ephesus and all the province of Asia, Demetrius and all the other peddlers of idols to a fake goddess were taking a big hit to their business, their revenue. I couldn't hold back a chuckle when uh, I read Demetrius's lament in verse 26 regarding Paul's impact on his business. He said, he said to the compadres, he said, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God's made with Hands are not gods at all. Several years ago, my kids would have said, well, duh. Gods made with hands are not gods at all. Can you imagine? Passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that make that point very, very fiercely. After making the business case for shutting Paul up, Demetrius then very unconvincingly argues the religious case, which is even more pathetic. He says, not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into repute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. The flow of Demetrius's argument makes it painfully clear which is the greater priority in his mind, and it isn't protecting the reputation of Artemis. It's protecting his wallet. Demetrius has been out of shape because this guy Paul is about to dethrone the magnificent goddess Artemis with Paul's preaching about Jesus. Now, let me ask you, how many of you would think it wise to worship a god who, A, could be represented by silver figurines made by human hands and could, B, be dethroned by the words of a human being? But the worshipers of Artemis were greatly motivated by Demetrius's Please, they started shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
verse 32, gives still more comic relief. It says, So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. Reminds me of the old Buffalo Springfield song from the 60s. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. At one point, a Jew named Alexander was brought before the crowd, presumed to have some culpability that isn't spelled out, uh, I think he was a believer, a Jewish Christian, and he was being set forth by the Jews as they were trying to say, okay, this guy's part of the problem. But when, the, when this crowd of pagan Gentile Artemis worshipers discovered that Alexander was a Jew, <laughs> it just made them more mad. They began chanting and shouting in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over. A man identified only as a town clerk stood up and quieted the crowd. He made it clear that if this disorderly gathering was not calmed down, the Roman authorities would see this whole event as a riot, and that wouldn't be good for anyone. I should mention that Ephesus had its own senate, had its own government, but it was very much subordinate to the Roman government. This town clerk was an Ephesian authority, but he knew he knew where the buck stops, and it was way above his head, and he wanted to make sure that he and the other people governing Ephesus didn't end up in a whole bunch of trouble because they didn't control a riot. Based on his own statement to the people of the city, he was definitely a pagan who had no connection with Jesus. He's the one who said, everybody knows that Artemis is the great god of Ephesus. Everybody knows that her image fell down from heaven, so why would we be worried about what this Paul is saying? But the amazing thing here, goes back to that thing about opposition, is that the Holy Spirit uses this unbeliever who holds a position of power and influence in the city to run interference for Christ's people in Ephesus. And there's a pattern there that we must not miss. We've already encountered a number of episodes in Paul's missionary journeys in which Paul's time to proclaim Christ in a given city was cut short by strenuous opposition from Jewish leaders or from Gentiles who perceived Paul to be a threat to their well-being. This happened in cities like Iconium, Lystra, chapter 14, and Thessalonica in chapter 17. But here in Ephesus, God had other plans. Here, just as in Corinth, the Holy Spirit cleared the way for Paul's stay in the city to be prolonged, not just a little while, but for years. And he did so through unbelievers. This happened not because the opposition that Paul and his co-workers encountered in Corinth or Ephesus was any less fierce or less strident than it had been in some of those other cities. In chapter 18, when Paul was in Corinth, his ability to continue to preach the gospel and nurture the church there became seriously threatened by the Jews, who rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat of Gallio. And that man was a powerful man. He was the governor of all of the region of Achaia. But Gallio was not a believer in Jesus. And yet the Lord used Gallio in very clear fulfillment of the promise that he had just made to Paul in a vision in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, 
when the Lord said to Paul in that vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. The last part is the reason clause. The, the comes after the word for. See, Jesus had many people in and around Ephesus just as he did in and around Corinth. Men and women and children whom he had claimed for himself before the foundations of the world. People whom God had foreordained to hear the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus, the long-promised Christ, and to believe that good news unto everlasting life. And until every one of those people heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work in that city was not done. The Holy Spirit had no intention of allowing hucksters selling Artemis statues in Ephesus to keep those men and women and children from hearing the life-giving gospel. So the Holy Spirit laid hold of the town clerk in Ephesus just as he had laid hold of the governor of Greece. And he used that man to decisively open the door for Paul to stay right there in Ephesus for a total of three years while Paul made Ephesus the base of operations until every person in all of the province of Asia had heard the gospel. Most rejected it. Most always do. But everybody heard. All right, conclusion. Whom do we fear? When opposition against the gospel of Jesus Christ rears its ugly head, where do our eyes go? Do we get fixated on the opposition? Or do we fix our minds and our hearts on the one who holds together the very atoms of the bodies of those people who make up the opposition every second of every day. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. The one who made all things. Does our fear go to him or to them? The reason the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge is because the fear of the Lord is, the, is that which brings us into line with reality. Agreeing with God that he only, he alone controls all blessing and all curse, all prosperity and all calamity that happens in every part of his creation all the time, that is the start point to knowing everything that is true. That one fact tells us more about what we experience in this life and in the life to come than anything else we will ever know. God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. In God and God alone, we live and move and are. So whom do we fear? We live in a world right now that is overwhelmed by fears from every corner. Fears unlike anything this world has ever known in any previous generation. And the greatest of all those fears, as always, the greatest of all those fears are grounded in the deeds and the works of human beings. Whether it's man-caused climate change or China invading Taiwan or 
artificial intelligence robots destroying humanity. Man is scared to death of what man does. But for all of us who belong to the creator and the master of all that, that exists, such fears have no place to land. We have the promise from the God who cannot lie that his plan and his purpose will be accomplished to perfection. And he's told us what that plan and purpose is. He will create a people for his own possession out of the mass of humanity, save that people, he prepare a place for that people, and he will put that people in that place and dwell with them for all eternity in perfect blessedness, perfect communion, perfect relationship. That's the plan. I'm going to finish with just two short passages. Bear with me just a minute here, and then I'll close in prayer. These, these two passages from the book of Isaiah, and they're dynamite. Just listen. Listen for the challenge that these two declarations present to you and me right now as they have always presented to mankind since they were written. Isaiah 8, verses 11 to 14. Thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to, not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of any of it. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary. Isaiah 51 verses 10 to 13 says, Was it not you, God, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over, so the ransomed of the Lord will return. And they will come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And now listen, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you? Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Who are you that you fear continually all the day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? Where is the fury of the oppressor? Loving Father, <laughs> that last question is a constant challenge to all of us. Where is the fury of the oppressor? It does not exist. It does not matter how militant the opposition is to the gospel and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ because the victory has already been won. And because of your amazing grace, all of us who trust in Jesus Christ are on the winning side and no one can do anything to change that ever. Father, what an amazing promise you've given to us in Christ. We know that it is well with our souls now and forever because of him and him alone. And your intention for us is to live as your ambassadors on this earth, proclaiming boldly, fearlessly, and clearly the truth that saves so that we get to watch you 
pluck people out of the darkness and bring them into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make us those people. Teach us to fear only you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.